Welcome to Warrington Bible Fellowship. Today, Senior Pastor John Kavakis will be sharing with us from Luke 23, verses 6 through 25. This is part two of Jesus on Trial. This is all part of his series in Luke. Today, the challenge will be this question. Do you have expectations of God and what happens when they're not met? As usual, be sure to share uh, this video, like, subscribe, do all of those things, hit the notifications button uh, so you won't miss a thing. God bless you. I'd like you to turn to Luke chapter 23. We're going to be in verses 6 through 25. While you're turning there, I'm, I want to tell you about something that happened to me quite some time ago. I'm not going to tell you how long ago because I'm embarrassed by the whole situation. But I, there, there was something that I wanted. And I, I wanted it desperately. Have you ever been in a situation where you just knew what you wanted and you knew you had to have it and probably figured that if you wanted it that bad, God wanted you to have it too? And I prayed, I prayed. I didn't get it. And I got to tell you something. I, I, I was disappointed. I was so sincere in my prayers. I mean, I could feel it inside. And it didn't happen. And I, I'm embarrassed to tell you that I carried a chip on my shoulder for a long time after that. You ever been in that situation? Thought something was going to happen, it didn't. And maybe have a little bit of a grudge against God? Well, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm older. I, I, some people think I'm a lot older. We talked about that last week. <laughs> Uh, but I still have my memory intact. And uh, I, I can now see why that, that desire wasn't granted. But I had to go through this process of being upset at God, railing at Him, and then repenting, thinking that, that I had the mind of God with this. And, and I didn't, even though I felt sincere about it. Repenting of, of having an expectation of God and assuming that my expectation matched his desire for me. So that's what I want to talk to you today about. So here's the thing I want you to hold on to as we go through this passage. Do we have expectations of God? Are there things that we think God's going to do for us or for the people around us? Now, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that, but how do we process that when it happens? Now, the last time we got together, we found out that some folks do, really don't want to hear the truth. It's hard for them to absorb. We saw that the chief priests and the rulers, the two primary groups that have been coming against Jesus for the last couple chapters, despite seeing Jesus perform miracles and do things that were totally contrary to everything we understand about how the world operates around us, despite them seeing him teaching with authority, giving glory to God, they refused to believe him. They refused to acknowledge that something was going on in his actions. So when we left the scene last week, Pontius Pilate, familiar name, I'll tell you a little later on how he got to be that familiar person, he's a Roman governor, had pronounced him innocent. The, the ultimate judicial uh, military authority over Judea pronounced him innocent, which made the priests and the rulers even more upset. 
So that was Jesus on trial, part one. Today's sermon is Jesus on trial, part two. It's going to show us how Pilate deals with this touchy situation. He has authority over all Judea. He can do whatever he wants to do, pretty much. But he can't afford to aggravate the Jews. He can't afford to get them upset because his, his, his uh, job is to collect taxes and to keep the peace. Rome's trying to expand their empire. They don't want to have to send soldiers into to Judea uh, to take care of Pilate's job. So Pilate knows that he can be in trouble if he can't keep the peace and if he can't collect the, the taxes. So our passage today rolls out in three general personas. We're going to see uh, Herod in verses 6 through 12. We'll see Pilate in 13 through 17. And we're going to see the rulers and maybe a few other people in 18 through 25. So let's take a look at Herod. Now, in, in Luke 23, 5, the verse we left off last, last week, it said, but they were urgent, saying that these are the people, the rulers and the chief priests, saying, he stirs up the people teaching throughout all Judea from Galilee even to this place. And so verse 6 says, when Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. Now, Pilate's got a ray of light here. Oh, wait a minute. Is he from Galilee? Pilate's jurisdiction was Judea, down in the southern portion of Israel. You can see it on the map there, highlighted in red. Galilee was to the north. Those of you who are familiar with the geography of, of Israel, Samaria is in between. Galilee's up by the, the uh, Sea of Galilee. And, and verse 7 said, And when he learned that he, Jesus, belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at the time. Now, Herod would be in Jerusalem because it's Passover. And everybody would, you know, Herod would have a huge palace and there'd be a place for him to stay. He was an honored dignitary uh, throughout Israel. So Herod, Herod's an interesting guy. But as we go through the New Testament, we see a lot of Herods. And it would be easy to think that they're all the same person. Now, the one we're talking about here is Herod Antipas. Okay, He's the son of Herod the Great. Now, Herod the Great came from a long line of rulers. Uh, the family ruled over Israel from 30 B.C. all the way to 100 A.D. Herod's father, Antipater, became administrator over Judea, and eventually uh, uh, well, he did that by helping Julius Caesar fight a war down in Egypt. His son, Herod, was appointed governor over Galilee. He did a nice job. He was not a nice man. Caesar uh, made him king over Israel, and that's when he became known as Herod the Great. So that's the Herod we see in Luke chapter 1 and in Acts 23. He's the one who wanted to find the baby Jesus and kill him when he found out that he was down in Bethlehem. So he had a lot of sons, and they had at least ten wives, some of which he killed. Well, I don't know, John, did he kill the wives or the sons? Yes. I mean, he killed anybody that he thought might be a threat to him. If the wife did something he didn't like, he'd have her crucified, have her head chopped off. If his sons did something, he had three of them that did kind of rise up and say, hey, Dad, you know, we need to make some changes here. Boom, they're gone. So when he died, three of his sons took over special regions in Israel. We had Herod Archelaus, uh, he ruled over Judea. Philip ruled over several small provinces to the north. And Herod Antipas, 
God, Galilee, and Perea. Now, that's what Herod we're talking about in this passage. So we can see Herod Antipas in Luke 3, Luke 9, Luke 13, and Acts chapter 4. Now, the first son we talked about, Archelaus, was so terrible a person that the Jews revolted against him and asked Rome to send in a governor to oversee the area instead of one of Herod's sons. That governor was Pontius Pilate. That's how Pilate got in his position. Herod Antipas did well. He was not a good guy, though. He built two large cities, kept the peace with the Romans. Just wasn't a good guy. And long after the events that we see in this passage, one more Herod, Agrippa, the grandson of Herod the Great, got his uncle Philip's territory by pushing him out. Now that, we see that in Acts chapter 12. He's the one who had James executed and threw Peter into prison. And after accusing his uncle Antipas, the guy we're talking about right now, of treason and having him ex- exiled to Gaul, he becomes king over all Israel. So Herod's family was a little bit of a dynasty. And Antipas, the one that we're talking about now, was one of that dynasty. So back in our passage, Pilate wants to unload Jesus, doesn't know what to do with them. And he sends him to Herod Antipas. Now, when Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad. It's unusual uh, because back in 13, he, he was trying to find out how to get rid of him. Rumors were that he was trying to kill him. Now, now, he wants to see a sign. He wants to be entertained by him. It says he saw Jesus and was very glad for he had long desired to see him because he had heard about him and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. Now, Luke has already warned us about those who want to see signs. So we need to be careful with this. In chapter 4, Jesus is out in the wilderness and how does, how does Satan tempt Jesus? But do some sign. Jump off this, do that, turn rocks into that kind of thing. Again, later on in chapter 4, Jesus tells Capernaum, you know, no doubt you're going to say to me, physician, heal yourself. No doubt you're going to say to me, do some sign to prove who you are. In chapter 11, the demons recognize that, that Jesus is the Son of God, but the people around him, they hear the demons say this, and the people around Jesus say, well, show us some sign. Show us some sign. So we're going to be careful about signs. Signs among God's people, and this is what we see in Scripture, they never satisfy. And I've got to tell you something, I have a background where, where frequently we would come together and, and there would be an expectation of a sign. Uh, if the sign didn't show up, if some miracle didn't happen, if some manifestation didn't happen, everybody would go, well, the Holy Spirit just didn't show up today. The Holy Spirit who's inside us. And what we found out was that no matter what sign occurred, everybody wanted to see another one. And then another one. And the group I was with would travel to see the signs. Jesus is up here. Jesus is down there. Brothers and sisters, signs never satisfy. They get us excited. They stroke our imagination. But they never satisfy So Herod's waiting for this sign. In 9, so he questioned him at some length, but he, Jesus, made no answer. Now, Herod's got a lot of questions to Jesus. He's excited to see him, 
He has a great expectation of what Christ is and what he can do. But Jesus knows what's in Herod's heart. We see in Matthew 9 that Jesus can tell what's in the hearts and the minds of men. It's kind of a scary thing, isn't it? I love the fact that Jesus knows what's in my heart most of the time. But the fact that Jesus knows what I'm thinking, well, that'll keep you in line. <laughs> so Jesus knows what's in Herod's heart, so he remains silent. He's not about to appease Herod by doing some trick for him. He's not a, uh, he's not a pet that jumps for, for the treat and that sort of thing. He's not going to perform for Herod. So, and, and so we need to think about that. Because as absurd as it sounds, sometimes we approach God with expectations. And then we've got to ask ourselves, if we do that, I, I mean, this is, what, this is where I started, wasn't it? If we have an expectation of God, what happens if those expectations aren't met? Sometimes we, 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 we do this thing, where we go, oh, I'm going to lay a fleece before God. And see if, he, see if he does what he did with Gideon. You know, the story about Gideon and the fleece isn't about God doing things to prove himself. It's about God's grace. Because God tells Gideon what he's going to do. Gideon says, oh, I need a sign. And you can almost see God go, really? <laughs> After I spoke to you, you need a sign. Okay, I'll give you one. So Gideon gets the sign he asked for. And then he wants another one. I mean, isn't that what we were just talking about? Signs don't satisfy. And the story about Gideon is about God's grace. Not God performing miracles. So we've got to be careful when we have expectations, when we ask for these things. What happens when they're not met? What happens in our hearts? What happens in our minds when God doesn't do what we expect Him to do? And we kind of see this in what's going on with Herod. And meanwhile, verse 10, the chief priests and the scribes stood by vehemently accusing him. The the leadership continues to accuse. Uh, And what Luke wants us to see here is that they're the driving force. They're the catalyst behind all this trouble that Jesus is in. Behind all of this anger that is being levied at Jesus. And the anger is growing. And all the while, Jesus remains silent. And again, we have to ask ourselves, how do we react when God is silent? How do we react when, when life is closing in on us? And we don't know what to do. We've got decisions to make and we don't know whether or not to do this or to do that. How do we react when, when we're losing people that are close to us? How do we react when our circumstances become dire and we're crying out to God and we don't hear anything? What happens? We know how Herod reacts, how he responds when Jesus fails to meet his expectations. That's in verse 11. And Herod, with his soldiers, treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. Now, you need to understand, Herod is a dignitary. He's, he's, he's a religious 
figurehead leader of the area. And here he is, the king of that region, joining the soldiers in making fun of Jesus. And, and I've got to tell you something, this goes way beyond mere disbelief. They're angry. They're resentful. They're filled with hate. And they send him away. Verse 12, And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day, for before this they had been at enmity with each other. Both men, both men have declared Jesus innocent. And neither one of them wants to deal with the reality of who Jesus is. So they decide not to deal with Him at all. Not going to do anything. And in their indecision, the two men who were enemies now become friends. And so, again, what Luke is trying to show us is that these men's, men with authority here are complicit in Jesus' persecution. They know He's innocent, but neither one does anything to protect Him. Neither one does anything to stand up for Him. Oh yeah, they mouth some words here and there, but they really don't do anything. And what we see is in that, they, they become bound together. And we see that we can be bound together with other people in doubt, in fear, even in anger. That's what these two decided to do, isn't it? Those, those who, of us who are believers are called to be bound together, not in fear, not in distrust, not in paranoia, but in love and mercy and forgiveness. And again, as we watch this roll out, what is God trying to show us? Well, I, I think the Spirit would be asking us right now, who are you bound to? And why are you bound to those people? What brings you together? We live in an environment where it's customary to just shout out at people that don't agree with us. Customary to get angry that people are doing things different than us. We argue over incredible stuff. Who's wearing a mask? Who's not wearing a mask? Who got a vaccine? Who didn't get a vaccine? Who won the election? And we get angrier and angrier and angrier and there are people that are stoking their fires and we feel bound to them. John, you've got to listen to this guy. He's got the truth. He's not a believer. He's not telling me about the Bible. There's no aspect of the gospel in what he's saying. Why do I have to listen to him? Who are you bound to? Herod, a supposedly godly man, is bound to Pilate. So let's take a look at Pilate. Verse 13. Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people. So Pilate, Herod's no help for his situation. Pilate knows Jesus is not a criminal was probably hoping that Herod would set him free. Wouldn't have to deal with it anymore. Now Jesus is back in front of Pilate, who tried, and, and Pilate tries to convince the, the Jewish leaders that they're wrong. Now, note the wording here. This is a significant turning point in Luke. This verse right here. Up till now, the primary antagonists have been the chief priests and the rulers. Now, the people are included. And the Greek word here, the root is laos. The common people, literally the nation. Now, I, I had a big argument with somebody several years ago when he said, the Bible's clear on everything. I said, ah, not everything. 
Yeah, you know, we have different means of baptism. We have different means of communion. The Bible's not really clear on everything, but the things that the Bible's clear on, it's clear on. It's called the perspicuity of the Bible. You can write that down and look it up later. And what he said was, this verse says all men. And I said, sometimes all doesn't mean all. And he just exploded. <laughs> Tipped his coffee over. <laughs> but I've never heard such silliness. Yeah, well, sometimes, you know, all men turned against Jesus. Yeah, well, there were some at the cross that didn't. There were some that were hiding in the shadows that didn't. It just meant most men. So we've got to be very careful how we read these things, but when we hear the people, we hear that by and large, the nation of Israel turned against Jesus Christ. Pilate wants to make sure, so, and here's what he's doing here, he wants to make sure that everyone knows what's going on. And I think, I think what Pilate was doing, this is just conjecture on my part, it's not there in the scriptures, but he wants to inform the general population as to what's going on. Maybe they'll be on his side if he blows the whistle on the priests and the rulers. So look, look, look what he tells them. Verse 14, and he said to them, you brought me this man as one who was misleading the people. And after examining him before you, behold, I do not find this man guilty of any of your charges again. So the priests and the leaders sent order, all the people are standing around and going, by the way, let me just give you a little bit of review so all of you people can be caught up on this. They lied to me. They lied to me. Check that last phrase in verse 14. I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. And then in 15 he says, Neither did Herod, for sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. There it is. Put before the entire nation. No one in authority has found Jesus guilty of anything. He's innocent. Then Pilate says something that is absolutely... It, it's mind-blowing if you understand this situation. In verse 16 he says, I will therefore punish and release him. Think about it. In order to appease the crowd, in order to appease the leaders, he's going to punish an innocent man. Pilate, who has supreme authority over all Judea, finds himself capitulating to the people's demands. Was it self-preservation? Was it a man wanting to fit in? Was he seeking popularity? Fame? He was seeking fame. I'm not sure he got the fame he was bargaining for. See, this is what happens when... when people struggle with, with popularity, when people struggle with the fact that they're more concerned about what people think and how the people around them receive than they are about the truth. So all those people are standing there. What about them? What are they thinking? Well, let's take a look at the rulers. And keep in mind, it's the rulers now and a few other people, maybe a lot of other people. Verse 18. But they all cried out together, Away with this man and release to us Barabbas. Who's that? Well, Matthew and Mark give us a little bit more detail. And Roman made a concession to the Jewish people during Passover. They would release one prisoner that was being held, whatever the people demanded. So look who the people release. Barabbas, verse 19. 
A man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection started in the city and for murder. This is incredible. The people want Jesus, who's being accused of insurrection, but has been found innocent. They want him to stay in prison, and they want the Pilate to release a man who is actually guilty of insurrection. And not only that, but he's a murderer. He's already been found guilty. In verse 20, Pilate addressed him once more, desiring to release Jesus. Pilate's trying. He's trying. But they kept shouting, crucify him, crucify him. Now we've gone from, we need to have him in prison. We need you to do something too. We want him to die. And it's not just that they want him to die. They want him to die this incredibly horrible, terrifying, painful death. And a third time, verse 22, he said to them, Why? What evil has he done? I found in him no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him. What is he talking about? I find no guilt in him. I'll punish him and release him. Verse 23, But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified. And their voices prevailed. They prevailed. Look look what happens. So, verse 24, Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. Verse 25, he released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, for whom they asked, but he delivered Jesus over to their will. Now, again, what Luke wants us to see is that Pilate is doing what he's been asked to do by these people. Ultimately, he accedes to the will of the crowd, to the will of the people. And at this point in Luke, reason, justice have gone out the window, and anger and misinformation have taken an incredible toll on the truth. So there's our there's our three personas. We, we, we saw Herod uh, asking God to do tricks for him and sending Jesus away, but saying, saying even as he sends him away, saying that he's not guilty. We saw Pilate who's trying to convince the people that this isn't right and he's this powerful leader that doesn't seem to have any power at all unless the people are with him. Think about that for a minute. And we saw these rulers, supposed to be the spiritual heads of the country, totally denying Jesus Christ. Think about this for just a second. These men in authority were not godly men. Pilate was a Roman governor. Herod, supposed to be a godly man, claims to be a godly man. But never once, never once demonstrates anything that can remotely be considered holy. Not speaking in scriptures. Apparently doesn't have any testimony. I'm sure he had the scrolls in his office, maybe. But there's nothing in him that sparks of being holy. But still, they were the leaders. 
seemed that no matter how many times they declared the innocence of Jesus, at every turn, there were more and more people who refused to believe it, and more and more people that insisted on more and more violent means of dealing with Jesus Christ, until nearly the whole nation demands a horrific death. These people got the whole nation swayed by feeding them misinformation, half-truths, and lies. It's incredible. And all of it happens because of a small group of people who themselves chose to ignore the evidence of their own eyes, the evidence of their own Scriptures, in an effort to retain control. And all of it happened because when Jesus showed up on the scene, He didn't do what they expected Him to do. He wasn't who they expected Him to be. They wanted somebody that was going to defeat the Romans. They wanted somebody that was going to give them everything they had been waiting for for so long. And Jesus came in. He comes in riding a donkey. Well, wait a minute. What's He doing on that donkey? I thought He'd be on a horse. We're going to have a war here, aren't we? Nope. Walks into Jerusalem, first thing he does is don't go over to Pilate's place and say, you're an ungodly man and I'm here to move you out of place. He goes in and cleans up the temple. My goodness. Defied everybody's expectations. Could that ever happen today? Could we ever let the same thing happen to us? Their downfall began when Jesus failed to meet their expectations, failed to show that He was on their side. You know, there's an incredible moment in the book of Joshua where the angel of God, the warrior angel of God shows up and Joshua wants to know whose side they're on. He says, I'm not on anybody's side. I'm here for God. We can get a lot of trouble thinking God's on our side, devoted to the same things we're devoted to, serves the same purpose we serve. Seeking is what happened to these people in the first century in Jerusalem was when their expectations failed to show up. They turned to murder and lies. How can we avoid this? Well, we can embrace the truth. We can follow the Spirit of God. We can set aside our expectations, pick up our crosses, and as He did, follow Him. Don't, don't miss this in this narrative. Jesus was silent before His accusers. No demonstration, no signs, no petition, no lobbying group. He was silent before his accusers because he knew the end of the story. Because he knew where he was going. Because he knew that everything that happened to him right here on this earth had no consequence to what his role was in eternity. We would do well as the church of the 21st century to ask ourselves whether or not we know what Jesus knew. Do you have expectations of God? I did. When they were unmet, I got angry. I told you, I carried a chip on my shoulder. 
And as, as my life moved on, regardless of my failed expectations, I began to realize there were good reasons that God didn't meet my expectations. I had to get down on my knees and repent. Because carrying those expectations around, as we have just seen, only leads to trouble. The type of trouble that Herod and Pilate and the people who were so upset fell into. We're supposed to learn from these things. And as we walk out of the sanctuary today, we need to ask ourselves whether or not we are. I've told you before, the only reason the church is here, brothers and sisters, if, if, if you remember nothing of your time at Warrington Bible Fellowship, remember this. The only reason the church is here is for the sake of the gospel. If God wanted a better life for you and me, he would take us up in heaven the moment we got saved. It leaves us here to be carriers of his grace, vessels of his mercy, messengers of his truth. 